Okay, good morning, everybody. Good to see you again. Good to be back um, in town. Somebody in first service was asking me, they thought maybe we were looking for a new pastor. So I told Jason that from up here, I hope he didn't preach too good last week. Um, but had a good time. You know, we were at a wedding three Sundays ago, and then we've been out in Colorado just enjoying the creation, which is really what t- this morning is all about. Um, I want to start with a question, though. Is, you know, something we all wrestle with at some point or not, I think, is, is God knowable? I mean, we never really hear Him audibly. You know, I've felt impressions. I've never heard Him audibly speak to me. We don't see Him. We can't touch Him. Um, you know, and if He can be known, how can He be known? Does He want to be known? Why does it appear sometimes He's so hidden from us? And so what we want to do is we're going to spend the next two weeks talking about this idea. Does God want to be known and how can He be known? And so we're going to be in the book of Psalms. We're in the book of Psalms. We're continuing that. We're going to be in Psalm 19, if you would turn to Psalm 19. And this psalm is so rich in answering this question that we're actually going to spend two weeks in it. Um, So Psalm 19. I don't know if you're a note taker. There are notes in the back. Um, We're going to have a lot of, I think there's a lot of good stuff in this psalm. So if you want that, you might run back and grab one or or wave a hand or something. I'm not sure. I don't necessarily have somebody that would bring it, but really encourage you to grab that because there's some scripture on there that we're going to be looking at also on that. So, but we're going to be in Psalm 19 to ask that question about how does God want to be known and how can he be known? And so we're continuing on to me what's almost a road trip uh, through the Psalms. And again, Psalm 19 will help answer that question. To me, this is the Yosemite of the Psalms. And I'll explain in a minute why I see it that way. So Psalm 19, um, would you mind standing? I want to read through Psalm 19. Would you stand with me through all 14 verses? I'm reading in NIV, and if you would just follow along. Psalm 19, it was for the director of music. Man, I wonder what this worship song sounded like. A Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun, it's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and making its circuit to the other, nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. God's people said, amen. So you, you may be seated. As we went through this, I think you probably noticed this psalm has some pretty easy divisions to it. Um, it really is a psalm that's broken into two distinct parts. Part one is about God's revelation, and part two is about David's response. God's revelation and David's response. And you can even see from the way I've done it up here, that first part actually has 
uh, is sub further subdivided into two sections, and I want to show you what those two sections look like. Um, section one is in verses one to six, and it speaks to God's revelation of himself through his works, through the skies. Um, some have called it the book of his works. And then section two, verses seven to 11, speaks of God's revelation of himself through his word, through his scripture, and some call this the book of his word. And so Psalm 19 speaks primarily you know, there's that response at the end, but Psalm 19 speaks primarily of two monumental truths. First, of the revelation of God's glory in His creation. That's the first monumental truth. And the second monumental truth is the glorious revelation of God in His Word. Just two huge monumental truths. That's why, to me, it is the Yosemite um, of the Psalms. How many of you have been to Yosemite? When you go, it's just amazing. When you go there, there's two rocks that are just monumental that stand out above all else. There is El Capitan and there's the Half Dome. And when I read this psalm, to me, that's what these two parts of the psalm do, is these just two monumental things that dominate and stand out in this psalm. Um, that's why C.S. Lewis calls it the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And one commentator says of Psalm 19 that it combines the most beautiful poetry with some of the most profound biblical theology. Great mix, huh? Great poetry. I'm not the poet guy. I'll take the theology, so I love the theology. And here's why this psalm is so significant, because it does have deep theology. And in this psalm, for the first time, God really establishes there are two primary types of revelation that I really want you to see. First, there is what people call general revelation or natural revelation. It is the witness of creation, the witness to God of creation. And in this revelation, God can be generally known. That's why it's called general revelation. And then there is what is called special revelation or biblical revelation. It is the witness of the Bible. And when I come to the Bible, I can know God much more specifically. Would you not agree than how I know Him in creation? So that's why it's called special revelation. And when David wrote, I mean, those two categories still are significant to us. When David wrote, there was kind of a second form of special revelation he did not know was coming. Um, it's really the highest form of revelation. It even stands far and above Scripture. And it's what's called incarnational revelation. It's the witness of Jesus. Him being God who came in human flesh to not, not just words to read about the Father, but I can actually see Him in a living, breathing, hot bodily form, how He interacts with people, what He says, what He does in situations. So even a much more profound um, form of, of revelation. But we're going to stick in the next two weeks with these, those two big types um, of the general and the specific, because that's how this psalm breaks down. So this week we're going to talk about the revelation of God's glory and creation, Next week, we're going to talk about God's glorious revelation of Himself in His Word, because that's how David approaches it. So this week, we're going to do the revelation of God's glory in His creation of that general or natural revelation of God through His creation. I'm going to, this morning, I'm going to zero in on verses 1 to 4, but it goes, this first section's 1 to 6, so can we read that for a minute? Because I don't want to leave the last of four, five, and six left alone. I want to say a few things about them, but I'm going to hone in on one to four. So again, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard of them from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. 
And then the end of verse 4, he's going to shift to the son um, in particular, which like dominates that, the, the heavens, right? It dominates our sky during the day. It's like the crowning achievement of what God put in the heavens. And so the last line of verse 4, in the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. In other words, he's made the heavens like the, the abode. This is the home of the sun. It's where it lives, right? Verse 5, it's like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. Boy, that really struck me as I was reflecting on this. I was just at a wedding, a pretty significant one, right? And about an hour before the wedding happened, uh, you know, photos are going on and the bridegroom steps out of his area where he's gotten dressed, ready to see the bride for the first time and get some photos before the ceremony. And I mean, he was just radiant, chomping at the bit. I mean, I, when I saw him coming out, I'm almost like, wait, wait, look, there's another hour. She's a Forsyth before she's a Siler. Just hold your horses. But, you know, to see the, the glow of him coming out, that that's how the sun comes out. Or he says it's like a champion runner, somebody ready to start the race, just champing at the bit. You know, if you've done any athletic competition, you know, you're ready to start the game and to, to get at it. I just love the imagery. Just that radiance, the festive mood of the sun's journey. And then verse 6, it rises at one end of the heavens, it makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. But like I said, I really want to focus on verses 1 to 4 primarily. And when we look at this, there are some, some companion texts that go with, with Psalm 19, 1 to 6. And if you're a I don't know, I write notes in my Bible. I really encourage you to put these scripture next to Psalm 19. There's Psalm 8, 1, Psalm 97, 6, Isaiah 6, 3, and Romans 1, 18 to 21. These are companion texts that speak to this same idea. Um, Romans especially, which we'll get into a little later, delve into this even much more deeply. But we're going to be kind of glancing at all of those this morning. But from Psalm 19, as I thought about it, there's four major things I learn about the revelation of God of Himself through His creation. Four big things. When I do the first one, I'm going to have some minor things underneath that, but four big things. So the first really big thing that I learned from this, and that's probably not big enough, I tried. God can be seen and known through His creation. I learned that from this psalm. He can be seen and known through His creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the works of God the work of his hands. And even though God is hidden from sight, he can be seen and he can be known in his creation. Do you remember when we did Psalm 8 about a month ago? Uh, David says that when God created the universe, he spun it off his fingertips. Do you remember that? So what David is saying here is like the fingerprints of God are all over creation. They're there to be seen. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said it was not the pen of Moses that initiated the knowledge of the creator. Mankind, though they had never heard the name of Moses, to say nothing of his book, know the God of Moses nonetheless. Nature is the teacher, and the soul is the pupil. I see in verse 1 specifically that the created universe, especially the heavens, declare two things about God. One, his glory. And if you remember, we've talked before. If you think about glory, that sometimes that's a little amorphous. Think of beauty, of splendor, of wonder, of majesty, okay? It, it declares His beauty. You can see the beauty of God in creation. And then secondly, in the second part of the verse, it declares His artistry through His handiwork. It talks about the work of His hands. And I think we know this to be true. I mean, we've all seen statues or paintings or anything that an artist has created. And even though you may not know them personally, you can learn some things about them through their handiwork. Is that not true? So I want you guys to, to help me out with this a little bit. First service did really good. No pressure. Um, 
But what, what are some things that through a person's artwork, you may not know them, but you can learn about the person through it. What, what are some things you would say? Do what? Did you say subject? Like the subject of what they're doing or, okay. What else? Yeah, you can see their emotions. Many times you can get the feelings, maybe even the feelings they were going through when they created that art. Okay. What else? Yeah, what they value comes through in their art. Yeah, you can see their perspective on things, what they're, they're thinking about things. The one I had thought about is when I look at most art, um, you tend to see a lot of order in it, and you're like, this person's orderly. They thought this through. I can see the orderliness, the attention to detail. Okay, so God can be known and seen through his creation. That's the first big one. I want to hit some things about this knowledge that we learn from this psalm, okay? So we're going to do some subpoints under this first thing. First of all, um, that this knowledge is intentional, that God has made himself known. The psalm starts, the heavens declare the glory of God. Do you remember when we were in Psalm 8? Psalm 8 begins this way, well, after the, the initial kind of pairing thing at the beginning and end, it says this, you have set your glory in the heavens. Or some translations, you've established your glory. So God, it's just not by accident it reflects his glory. He intentionally put it in there, um, intentionally placed it there. And look at the language of these first four verses of, of the active intentional communication God built into the universe. Um, and if you're, if, if you're into marking your Bible, like circle these words. Verse one, the heavens declare, the skies proclaim. Verse two, they pour forth speech. Verse 2, they reveal knowledge. Such significant words in those two. They reveal knowledge. Verse 3, their voice goes out into all the earth. Verse 3, their words to the ends of the earth. So God has purposely made himself known in his creation. That's why Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who takes off his shoes... Only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. That's one of my favorite quotes of all time, that he's intentionally put knowledge of who he is in his creation. The second sub-point is this knowledge is continual and it's irrepressible, that the heavens are continually displaying his glory. Not just when he first created it, it did it, but even up to this very day. Look at the language of verse 2. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. I love that word, pour forth speech. Um, it's the Hebrew word for um, a spring of water bubbling out of the ground that just continually produces water, fresh water, bubbling, unstoppable, irrepressible. Um, Pat and I, for our anniversary trip earlier in June, were down in... Arkansas, and we went to Hot Springs, Arkansas for the first time. I don't know if you've read into the National Park down there, but you get to see places in the hill where the water's just coming out of the hill, just nonstop, just constantly um, gurgling forth, and that that's, that's what God's creation is like. It's continually, irrepressibly pouring forth a revelation about God. The third something I learn about the knowledge of God in creation is that it's available to all. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Their voice goes out into all the earth. And their words to the ends 
of the earth. In Isaiah 6.3, a companion text, the angels are singing at the throne of God and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of His glory. Full of His glory. And Psalm 97.6, the heavens proclaim His righteousness and all peoples see His glory. So it doesn't matter where you are on this earth, His creation reveals His glory no, to, no matter who you are, no matter where. You can be in Antarctica, you can be in the Arctic, you can be in the most remote desert, the most remote jungle. You can even go into outer space and look back on earth. And it doesn't matter where you are that all people have access to this information about God. That there's no place, nowhere you can be that this is not available to you. Fourth about this knowledge, I learned that it's inaudible, and that's in verse 3. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. So it's creation, it declares His glory, but it does so inaudibly, right? And though wordless, I want you to know this communication is very real. It's no less real, okay? It's nonverbal communication that's in creation. And if you think about it, we communicate nonverbally, is that not right? I mean, I don't know the statistics, I don't remember, but the, the, what I've heard is, is the majority of what you say is actually nonverbal in a conversation. So we, we communicate more nonverbally than we do verbally. Um, ever play a game of cards, like Rook? You and your wife with another couple who have this deep ability to communicate nonverbally and to see how much it affects their ability to, to, like how they know what card they have or Trump, I have no idea how it happens, but have you ever had that experience? Okay, it's the same kind of thing. You know, iconography is wordless communication. Or simply the road signs we see all the time. And I want you to know, a couple of funny things are coming. So get ready to laugh, okay? I mean, to me, these are funny. It tells you a lot about the creator. I created this PowerPoint. You, you learned some things about me from the things I put in my PowerPoint. We were in Colorado. Saw a lot of wordless signs that communicated important things to us. About the traffic or the road. About People on the road that might be there, we, several times a place where men were at work, kind of warning you ahead of time, or a crosswalk in a town, a school crossing. Even saw this one in Colorado. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Thank you, Jen. <laughs> actually, I saw that in a store on a little magnet uh, that actually wasn't on the side of the road. I mean, you see things like this of the animals. There's a place between Colorado Springs and Buena Vista where you might encounter elk. There was a place to the mountain I climbed that it was a horse crossing. You see a lot of this rock falling, right? I mean, even this sign in Colorado, uh, Warren, you don't ever put cattle on top of mountains, do you, without fences? I hope not. Uh, anyways, that's how my mind works, okay? Um, you can learn things about me from the things I put on my PowerPoint. But it's inaudible. But though inaudible, the, the fourth or the fifth thing about this knowledge is that it is clear. It is clear. In fact, God would say it is crystal clear. And so here's what I want to do now. I'd like for you to turn me with me to Romans chapter 1 because we're going to look how Paul takes what David wrote in Psalm 19, 1 to 4, and he's really going to expound upon it and develop it even more deeply. So Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be reading in verses 18 to 21, and this is where we're going to learn that God says he has made this clear. So Romans 1, and I'm starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And now here's where he's going to get to this point, that this revelation is clear, okay? Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, have been made clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. And I'm going to stop there. So according to verses 19 and 20 in particular, God has made what is unseen, obvious, and clearly seen. Clearly seen. That leads me to my second big point. So I've done the first one, that God is knowable and can be seen in His creation. The second big point is this, that what may be known about God through His creation, it is limited in scope. It's limited in scope. Only a small fraction of what can be known about God, about who He is, His attributes, can be seen in creation. A very thin sliver of what can be known about Him. We already saw in Psalm 19.1 that through creation, I can know that He's beautiful and that He's an artist. He does handiwork, and I can kind of gather some things from that. But Romans 1.20 in particular lists four specific things we can know about God from creation. Four things. So in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. So here to me are the four things that God says can be clearly seen. Number one, that God is invisible. That He's invisible. That this visible world, it's the result of somebody. Someone created it, and whoever that is, we don't see him, right? He's out there and he's invisible to us. Number two, that God is powerful. I mean, frequently when I'm out on creation, especially when you get out into Colorado, I stepped out one night on the deck to look at the stars and to wonder at him. Frequently I'll think, can you imagine the power behind all of this? Have you ever thought that? Can you imagine the power, the unimaginable power? I think we all have thoughts about that at times. So that God is invisible, he's powerful. Secondly, that he's, third, that he's a person. Unlike pantheism, he is not an impersonal force that just infiltrates everything and we're all part of the divine. That's, that's not what this God is. He is personal. I mean, you read through Romans 1, it speaks of God in a personal terms. In verse 20, it uses the personal pronoun he of him. In verse 20, verse 21, twice he And we all know that people are the ones who create things, right? People who think, who have emotions, who have feeling, who have a will, are the ones who design something in their mind and then create it. So we can know that he is personal. And then fourth, we can know that he's divine. That whoever this invisible, really powerful person is, um, who's created, he must be supernatural. He must be above and beyond the creation. He's out there. He's got to be divine. And... I think that's the reason why 95% of the people on the earth today believe in God. And if you look at all of human history, 99.9% of people believed in God because it is so evident in His creation. But again, I really want to emphasize this knowledge in creation, it is limited. It's very limited. It is enough to bow in awe to Him, to stand in wonder, to bend my knee to Him, and to not create an idol of a visible thing for Him because I know He's invisible. It's enough to do that, but it is not enough to know Him personally and intimately. I can't know many details about Him. I mean, like we just talked, it's with an artist. I can know some things about that artist, but I don't know them personally, right, just by looking at their work. That, by the way, is next week. We're going to come to Psalm 19 verses 7 to 11 where David says God has revealed himself personally and intimately through his word, so we need this to come alongside of it. It's also why, to me, really interestingly, in Psalm 19, the first six verses about creation, it only uses the word Elohim, which is Hebrew, just God, generic God, 
And then it uses his name in verses 7 to 11 when it talks about special revelation. Because all I can know in creation is that there's a God up there, but I can't know his name. I can't know much about him. I can know that, he is a, that God is invisible, powerful, personal, and divine, but that's it. Over the years, I'm working with international students, especially Chinese students, came from a very atheistic background. I met a number of students who worshipped God, this creator God, and they had a name, a word for him or a name for him in Chinese. They called him Tianyue, which meant the grandfather in the sky. And I can appreciate that, right? Losing his hair, a little bit gray or turning white, I guess, put on a little bit of weight. But he's the grandfather that's up there in the sky. But I don't know, we don't know much else. And when I would talk to them, they would say, we pray to him and we, we want to follow him, but we just don't know anything about him. We just know he's up there and that he's deserving of something from us. Um, and that's, again, why next week the revelation of God and his word is so important. Um, why special revelation is so important, because that's how we come to know God. This, by the way, is why missions is so important. Because there are a lot of people out there who know of God, of a creator, but they don't know him intimately, personally. And don't you long for them to know him the way we do? Not just in the word, but as having come in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and have a relationship with us. A lot of people don't know that Tenye wants a relationship. He just doesn't want to be a grandpa. Okay. Third major thing I learned from this text is we're accountable for this knowledge. I mean, look at the end of verse 20. Six simple words. So that people are without excuse. People without excuse. We're responsible for this information, this revelation. He has allowed us to know enough about himself that we're accountable for it, that nobody can plead ignorance to God. And I'll come back to that in a minute. And then the fourth and final big thing I learn from these texts is that in spite of the clarity of God's revelation and creation, people intentionally stifle that knowledge. People intentionally stifle it. If you have Romans open in your Bible, or even on your phone, jump down to Romans 1.28. In the middle of that verse, it says, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Wow. It's not worthwhile to know that. Pretty damning indictment, isn't it? Romans 1.18. Paul goes even further. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, who suppress the truth. That word suppress in Greek is a really strong word. It's not just that people ignore this revelation, we actually push against it. We suppress it, flat out deny it. It's not just, yeah, we ignore him, it's we flat out deny it, that we knowingly and deliberately suppress the truth of God that's revealed in creation. We stuff it down. We want to put under the lid, keep the lid on it. We stifle that truth that's been clearly demonstrated. Turn a cold shoulder to it. Don't want to know. In a minute, I'll tell you why. How many of you grew up with brothers? I don't know if sisters do this, but grew up with brothers. Um, as a brother especially, do you remember the times you would do something to antagonize your brother, like you'd tear up his Lego creation on Saturday morning, and as soon as you did and he realized it, you would run as fast as you could down the hall, get to your room, slam the door, put your foot against it, and hold it as tight as you could to keep him out? You ever have that experience? Evan, no, never did that. Um, yeah, that's what this is talking about. This is what we do to the truth in Revelation, that humanity doesn't want to know that, and so we slam the door on it, and we put our, put our foot against it to keep it out. Um, 
And I think there's good reason for this. I'll come to that in a second. Look at Romans 121. Here's what he says. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. I just don't want to acknowledge you. I don't want to give you the glory you deserve. You're not going to get my worship. Because the reality is you know this in your own heart. That to acknowledge that there is a creator, a creator of mine, it means that I have a master and I have a Lord and somebody that's over me. And that life's just not about me and what I want to do, but I have somebody that I need to obey and follow, right? Even when you follow Jesus, do you not sometimes have days where you struggle with his lordship and you're like, I'll take the reins today, right? I think that's why this suppression happens. Um, But not only that, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 23, that we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. This invisible God, we exchange him for images Verse 25, that we exchange the truth about God for a lie. We worship and serve created things rather than creator who is forever to be praised. All those pagans who create idols of birds and snakes, you know, those crazy people who worship these visible things. Um, But we're no better. We've talked about that before. I'm just more sophisticated in my adultery, right? I love and worship my wife, my spouse, my career, my job, my reputation, money, my children, my grandchildren. God forgive, forbid that your grandchildren can become an idol. Um, wait till you get to be a grandparent. But we all do that, right? We all exchange him because we want to worship. There's something more important to us. So here in Romans 1, Paul is really clear about the deliberate nature of human rebellion against God. It is rebellion, okay? That the guilt of humanity, it's not due to a lack of truth. It's due to a suppression of the truth. A suppression of the truth. In Hinduism, the core belief of Hinduism is that the reason we're in a world of suffering is because of ignorance. And if you can just learn the truth and know the reality of the universe, that it, that's what will fix everything. But in Scripture, the problem is not ignorance. It isn't that we don't lack knowledge, as one commentator says. The problem is, is we will not acknowledge the truth that we have. We won't bow our knee and worship Him. And that's why John wrote in his eyewitness account of Jesus' life in chapter 3, verses 19 and 21, This is about Jesus in particular, but it's about any light of revelation God gives us. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and they will not come into the light for fear of their deeds being exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes in to the light. All right, let me summarize, I think, where we've been with Psalm 19 and these other companion text that God has made himself known he has made himself known is that not great news that he has made himself known that he can be seen and known through his creation this knowledge is intentional he's made it that way it's continual and irrepressible it's available to all it's inaudible but though it's inaudible it is clear and what we know about God through his creation it is limited in scope that we're accountable for that knowledge and information. Can you say that? Can you say with me, I am accountable. I am accountable. That's what Scripture says. And then fourth, in spite of the clarity of God's revelation creation, people intentionally stifle that knowledge because I don't want to bow the knee to somebody, right? That's just humanity's. That's the problem after sin, the fall. And I want you to know, all of this I've shared this morning, this comes from God's specially revealed word, okay? 
This comes from him. This is God's opinion. This is his judgment. This is his verdict on the nature of reality, on the nature of creation, on the nature of who he is, on the nature of him being known. This is not my opinion, okay? I didn't come up with this. I'm not just telling up here, telling you what I think. As Rich Mullins famously says in one of his songs, um, I did not make it. No, it is making me. It's the very truth of God. It's not the invention of any man. I'm just declaring to you what Scripture says, okay? This is what God says about His creation revelation. You know, I learned a long time ago, I still don't do it well, but to trust His judgment over my own, and so I stand on the reality of this. And what's interesting is over the years in my conversations with international students, a lot, we had a lot from like China and Japan, atheistic backgrounds, but as you got to know them, dug into their life, got to know them better as life circumstances happened, that I found the vast majority of them Though they didn't really maybe want to admit it, they couldn't shake the reality that they saw in creation that there was a God. I saw that time and time again. Don Richardson, who actually spoke here at Missions Conference, this is a great book. It's a book of stories he got from all over the world from missionaries of pockets all over the world of people um, who... As missionaries went there, they would always run into people who worshipped idols and bowed to, they'd made visible things instead of worshipping the invisible creator, but they would always find a pocket, like the Karen people that Adoniram Judson came to, a pocket of people who believed that there was a creator, that he was invisible, a person of great power who was divine, but he was invisible, and they dare not make any form and worship that they worship the invisible God. And when he showed up to that tribe, he had found so much resistance in the ones that worshipped idols, but when he showed up to that tribe with the scripture, they were so hungry because they believed that that was the way they could get to know the God they had worshipped for centuries but just didn't know who he was. Great book if you are into reading those kinds of things. Here's what Scripture says. You have set your glory in the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. I've got the whole earth is full of his glory and all people see his glory. I want to show you this reality. Can I do that? I just want you to sit back for a minute and I want you to take it in. Had to get the foothills in there. That one too.
we saw a bear in Colorado about 12 feet below us on our deck, a big black bear. I'm glad it wasn't this fellow. He would have ripped the whole thing down. <laughs> Do you not see the glory of God revealing his creation, his beauty, his creativity, his power, that he's this person, though invisible, who's divine, who made all of this? We'll see this more next week. What I love about Psalm 19 is David ends it, because remember the Psalms are journals. He ends it reflecting on God's revelation. And I want us to just take a minute to do that. So most of you are part of the choir, right? You see the revelation of God in creation. That's most of you, that's the case. So here's my question for you to reflect on. Because I said this when I did Psalm 8 and God's glory in the universe and the God who created all this, is he really designed to be my personal assistant who just works to make my life what I want it to be? I'm not saying he doesn't care, but is he, the, is, is he the Lord or am I the Lord? So we all go through the ups and downs of life, do we not? We undulate times I'm living under his lordship and times that I'm not. So that's my question is, are you, as a believer, are you living under his lordship? And I also know that there are people who come here um, some people I know personally who still are not sure of this, not sure of this. So a couple of things. When I used to speak with international students about this a lot, my challenge was on two fronts. I'm not sure there's the creator thing, there's really this revelation in it. Um, two things to think about. Number one, I was challenged them to delve deeply into science, and I was happy to walk on that journey with them. And I also challenged them to be very careful of selective vision. We all have to be careful of that, of letting what I was told for a long time affect what I see. Let me just briefly hit those two. Science was a question I had in coming to faith. I thought scripture and science were contrary, and I had to wrestle with that. And so it was an important part of my own journey. And I just want you to know, I was amazed to find the latest discoveries of science, in particular as we look more deeply into the universe, out further and smaller, that, that the revelation of his glory is even more amazing than ever was it before. Three things that really convinced me, these are big words, but um, irreducible complexity, the fact that in the smallest cells there is actually information in the DNA there, and I learned in my first class at Emporia State back in 1990 on information management. That information, I was taught, cannot be created, can only be created by intelligence. Information cannot happen randomly, can only be created by intelligence. So the fact, the irreducible complexity you find in cells, um, what's also called specified complexity, there's so much in the universe are systems, and systems uh, need intelligence to design them, especially multiple systems work together. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. And then what's called the anthropic principle, that it really appears, the more we learn about the universe, it appears that everything was created for l human life on the earth, as amazing as that sounds. And you may be like, I'm not, I, I've not heard of that or I'm not sure. Um, the four horsemen, who were the new atheists a while back, who were the biggest, who were really thrashing Christianity and all that, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, some others, but um, Christopher Hitchens, I saw a video where he said that the argument in science that, that got him this close to believing in God, he still wasn't sure, was the anthropic principle that it, it appeared everything in the universe was designed for human life. If you have questions about science, I'd love to talk to you about that. It's one of my favorite topics. And the other thing I want to throw out again is this idea of being compared, being careful about selective vision, okay? But Perhaps be willing to, to open your eyes to see what may be there. Romans 1.19, I love the way Eugene Peterson translates it. The basic reality of God is plain enough. Open your eyes, and there it is. 
take a long, thoughtful look at what God has created. People have always been able to see God's eternal power and the mystery of his divine being. So just a few quotes. If you're like, I'm not sure I can see that stuff, just a few things. Marcel Proust said, the only real voyage of discovering consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Henry David Thoreau said, it's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. Just Monday, I climbed a tall peak. I had to do a lot of scrambling over boulders at the top. And there was a family that was up there with me, a dad and his four teenage children who had never done one before. And they were actually to my left trying to go up over the top, but they were, the boulders were huge and they were having a really hard time and they, didn't, they, were, they were a little bit scattered. And I just said, you know, there's actually these little things they put up here called a cairn where people intentionally stack rocks. And if you will look for those and just go to the next cairn, you'll make it to the top without having to clamor the way you are. And they're like, that's so helpful. They had new vision to see something that was already there. Does that make sense? Sherlock Holmes, in speaking to Watson, said, some of us see, but do not observe. Or even more poignantly, Helen Keller asked the question, is there anything worse than blindness? Oh, yes, she said. A person with sight, but no vision. And that great master, C.S. Lewis, in The Magician's Nephew, said, what a person sees and hears depends a good deal on where they are standing It also depends on what sort of person you are. What sort of person you are. So why does God appear so hidden sometimes? Like, why is it not so clear? Um, C.S. Lewis said, because if God made himself irresistible and irrefutable, you would fall at his knees because of his power. You would not love him and give your heart to him, and God wants to woo us, so he gives us enough information to draw the open heart. And that's what Blaise Pascal said, there's enough light for those who desire to see and enough darkness for those who do not desire to see. Now, I mean, isn't God's amazing? Isn't his word amazing? This psalm, what scripture says about creation. So now we come to his table. Come to his table. And there's something really scary in Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. I mean, who wouldn't shake in their boots to hear that? Because we suppress the truth of God. But I want you to know there's better news than that because two verses before it, in Romans 1, 16 to 17, I want you to see what Paul wrote. I am not ashamed of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, just believes, First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus, get this phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed. Before he talks about the wrath of God revealed, the righteousness of God is revealed. Okay? A righteousness that we know comes through Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, where he lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died. He takes my sin upon himself, and if I accept that, he forgives my sin, and he brings me into a relationship with himself, and I never have to face the wrath of God. Is that not good news? Is that not good news? And then it ends a righteousness that is by faith. It is only by faith, not by what I do. It's by faith from first to last. So we come today to celebrate his table and to claim that good news that the righteousness of God is revealed in Jesus on the cross and that I can have the righteousness of God through him. Is that not good news? I don't have to stand before the wrath of God. So those who are helping, I invite you to come up to the tables. We have five, three up front. We have two in the back. And we want to 
come to the Lord's table today and remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, especially his death on our behalf for our sin. And, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight 28, that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So can we take for a minute and do some examination, especially, I think, with this text on the question of who's Lord of my life right now? Am I the one that's filling that space, sitting on the throne of my life, or am I allowing him? Maybe God spoke to you another way, but let's take a minute and let's just do some examination of our own heart because we come to this seriously with a sense of the weightiness of the cost it cost him to pay for our sin. Anyone who knows Jesus as Savior and Lord is free to take at the Lord's table. You don't have to be a regular part of this church. You don't even have to be a covenant member. If you know Jesus, we welcome you to this. Um, you're going to come up, and they're going to offer you the, the bread and the juice. They're going to say a few words, So when, and wait till their invitation to take and eat. You can leave your cup when you're done. Please come as family groupings or friend groupings. We'd love to have that. Take as long as you need to reflect out there before coming up. Just to remind you, even if there's a line behind you, which there will be, don't feel like you have to rush, okay? Don't feel like you have to hurry. This is the Lord's table. If you need a gluten-free option, it's back in the back right um, where the blockers are and where the, the Barrett quote back there I've got for Steve. Steve, that's just between you and I. Sorry about that. Let me read from Luke 22. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and the apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, because that's symbolic of the breaking of his body. He broke it, right? He said, do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And as he poured it out, which is poured out for you and poured out for the sacrifice of many for the forgiveness of sins as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many and take and drink. And so that, that's what we're going to do this morning. So as you feel ready and prepared, come to any of the tables and uh, receive the Lord's table. Your server has said this to you, but I want to reiterate, this means you are deeply loved. And do we not all need to hear that? doesn't matter what you have, what people think about you or what you do. You're loved unconditionally by your Father. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we just proclaim the gospel. So would you stand with me? I'm just going to do this off. I mean, just I did this first service off the cuff, but can we sing the doxology? Would you join me? If you don't know it, that's okay. We don't have the words, but I think most probably do. Praise God.
I pray. Father, thank you for the truth that you have made yourself known. You want to make yourself known, and you've clearly done so in creation. I also thank you, as we're going to look next week, you've made yourself known even more intimately in your word, and especially in Jesus, who came to die for me to bring me in a relationship with yourself and to show me what you're really like. So we just stand on that rock reality. Help us to see you in creation this week, to glory in you, to pause, to see the cottonwoods waving and praise to you. And we just pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Twelfth, a lot of people out there who do not know the God of creation, so you are sent. <laughs>